reach Young Adult Ministries Sermons Online from Tuesday, November 30th, 2021 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled Greatness from Matthew 23, 1-12. There is a story. Good evening, everyone. Hey, Becca. You guys haven't met Becca O'Neill. She's amazing. Let's be friends. Um, Emmeline Pankhurst was a activist in the early 1900s in England. She was part of the suffrage movement in England where women were fighting for representation in government and to be able to vote. And um, she was the, the front of the movement of the women's movement in Great Britain in the early 1900s. And her, um, her message was really simple. She coined the phrase, deeds, not words. Deeds, not words. That phrase has been used in a couple of different contexts over the last century, um, but it comes from this idea that we have to be not just people who talk about things, but we actually need to be people who do what we say. The idea is, is the old adage, we need to put our money where our mouth is. Um, you know, one of the things that has been exciting about the last three years of being the young adult pastor here at Evergreen has been to see God take a group of half a dozen young adults who are hungry to have community and slowly but surely, not by ministry tricks or by um, flashy things, just a simple pursuit of godliness and understanding God's word, how that has blossomed into something that really is astonishing. Um, Tonight, we're going to talk about where we're going in 2022. We have done some pretty incredible things over the last three years. Uh, When we started this year, this year has been the year of unity. We started out by looking at Philippians and Uh, how God defined unity, the importance of protecting unity, why we need to um, be accountable to each other, why we need to have a common pursuit that um, just as um, Christ is unified with the Father and the Spirit, we need to be unified with each other. And then we looked at spiritual gifts. We looked at how God had used young adults specifically in the Bible to exhibit spiritual gifts, leadership and wisdom, understanding, uh, prophecy, things like that. And then we took uh, some time and we looked at um, the armor of God and what that entails, how each individual piece, all of us have been given standard issued equipment and all of those pieces, while they serve a purpose, they serve to unify the equipping of a soldier for battle. And so we have been talking a lot about how we fit together. We've done things that we didn't do in the past. Uh, We went to Utah We took two 15-passenger vans, we loaded up, and we drove through the night. Taylor almost killed us. (laughs) Only our van. I'm not going to lie, I was praying the whole time. Uh, I went into the back to rest while Taylor drove, and it was perfect because of all the seats that I could have, Lindsay and I were talking about this just, just the other day, reminiscing and laughing, that like half of my rear end was hanging off the edge of the bench seat, 
and everyone seemed to be sleeping but me. And I'm <laughs> looking around, and you know, it's cool, it's cool. I mean, we made it, right? But uh, you know, I took a couple five-hour energies. We made it there. It's fine. It's fine. All the all the nurses. This is true. Taylor was driving. He literally. So this is funny because we stopped to get gas, and we had to wait like 20 minutes for the other van to catch up. We, we finally, when Nick shows up, he's like, dude, you were like 15 miles ahead of us. <laughs> this is after driving for like, <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was a adventure for sure. But, um, the whole purpose of that trip was just to spend time together and laugh and have stories like that. There's some ridiculous things that happened that week. Got to know Savannah on that trip. Oh my gosh. Life has not been the same ever since. Um, Many, so it was, it was just awesome. It was really cool to see how God has bonded us together. You guys are having hot chocolate get togethers and you're having movie nights and you're having all this fun stuff together. And I love to look back and to think, man, the conscious decision to say, you know what? We are not going to try to produce something. We're just going to quietly chase Jesus and see what happens. And lo and behold, um, people have been equipped for community. One of the challenges that we face in our generation is that community is the buzzword for young adult ministry. It's all about, oh, we need to get together. We're going to have community. We're going to have community. And one of the things that I've learned over this last year is that, is that in order for us to have deep, authentic community and unity, we have to be equipped ourselves to handle those relationships with maturity. That means like when we have hard conversations, we can do it in a way that is tender, that is constructive, we use the analogy all the time that we want to be a scalpel, not a cleaver. Because what's the difference between a surgeon and a butcher? A surgeon's task is to do the minimal amount of damage possible because their focus is healing, right? A butcher, on the other hand, they don't care. They're just lopping things off. When we have authentic godly community, we need to be surgeons and not butchers. Scalpels, not cleavers, because we want to, we want to have intentional conversations and hold each other accountable in ways that are constructive. But what I've realized is that um, I, I talk to a lot of young adult pastors. I spend a lot of time in young adult ministry circles. And I cannot tell you how many conversations I have with people uh, in ministry that they're constantly putting out fires with, pe- with their people. And the pastor is this judge that goes through and you know, mediates conflict. And what I found with all of you is that God has grown you in your walk with him. And there are a lot of conversations that I find out happen after the fact. That you guys know what it means to chase Jesus. And you know that if there's conflict, we find solutions in the Bible. And this is where we go. That means that our, our immediate question anytime there's conflict is, well, what does the Bible say about that? That's the first question. It's what we want to do. We want to live by the word. And so as we look at next year, um, one of the things that I've realized, I was, I've spent the last several months praying about this and thinking about what the Lord wanted us to do. And we've had a lot of great things happen over those last three years. Many of you have come into our lives and, and God has seen some incredible community blossom. But as I began to pray and think, I began to realize the Lord kept saying over and over to me that um, it wasn't time yet for me to make this ask of you but it's time now. By and large, we have not done anything hard. We've not done anything intentional. 
we have spent time growing in community and growing in our walk with Christ. But the reality is that I believe that we finally are to the place as a group, as a community, to where God has equipped us with the tools to do hard things. So here's a question. You can lift your hands. You don't have to lift your hands, whatever. How many of you want to do something that matters with your life? Pretty much everybody. Here's the, here's the thing that we've got to consider. Is are we going to be a people who are defined by our words? Or are we going to be a people who are defined by our deeds? That's what we're going to look at tonight. The theme for 2022, this year was the year of unity. Next year is going to be the year of the servant. And um, it's going to be hard. Y'all, it's going to be really hard. We're going to be in situations that are going to be uncomfortable. They're going to be difficult. They're going to stretch us. We're going to take care of people that can't take care of themselves. Not just for a week in the summer, but we're going to be redefining our lifestyles next year. And as we're going to see tonight, this is not something that I'm going to be up on the tower telling you guys what to do. Part of the stress of having to deliver this message to you tonight is, to, is for me to recognize that I will be in the trenches with you. This is not going to be Pastor PJ saying, okay, go do those things. Good job. Way to go. Um, Lindsay and I have committed to be there with you in all of it. And so as you begin to listen and to process what I have for you tonight or what the Lord has for you tonight, I want you to be thinking about um, what that means for you to be a person of deeds, not words. Take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew chapter 23. These last several chapters of the book of Matthew are um, the final moments in Jesus' life. Uh, in chapter 22 of Matthew, we see Jesus come into Jerusalem in the, what's called the triumphal entry. Palm branches are waving. People are cheering and they're singing Hosanna. They realize that the Messiah has finally come and there's this great ceremony. And what that does is that kicks off uh, what's called Holy Week. We celebrate Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. So all of the week of Easter is called Holy Week. And then the Sunday of Easter in the spring is typically corresponds with the, uh, the Feast of Passover in the Jewish calendar. This is something that God has promised millennia ago, thousands of years ago, that his Messiah would come. And the picture of the Passover meal is a picture of what would happen to Jesus as the Messiah, as he paid for our sins. And so what was the Passover now is what we celebrate as Easter Sunday. But sandwiched between the Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, this Holy Week, Jesus goes through Jerusalem and he issues a series of challenges, of parables, of lessons. He knows that the time is now for him to change history. So one of the things that happens is that Jesus gets into a couple sparring matches with the religious leaders. And um, he does this intentionally and on purpose. He starts out by teaching parables and using stories to teach deep lessons. And as he does this, the religious leaders begin to challenge his authority. Who are you to say these things about us, about life, about God? Who are you to do these things, to do these miracles? And he begins to uh, spar with them and they try to do everything they can to entrap him. And in Matthew 23, he transitions from talking in hyperbole, in parables, 
and he goes straight to the throat. And he confronts the, confronts the Pharisees about the way that they've been living and the way that they have stewarded um, the responsibility of carrying God's name. So check this out. We're going to read the first 12 verses. I'll read, I'll read it in its entirety so that we have context, because remember, context is key. Um, and then we're going to go through and we're going to take it apart one piece at a time. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they, therefore, uh, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all the deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their, their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be the servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The first thing I want you to see here is who these Pharisees are. These are the enemies of God. In verse 1, he says that he, so Jesus is talking to the crowd in general, and then he focuses in, and he, and he stops talking in parables, and he looks direct, directly at the Pharisees, and he says, um, these guys right here, he draws their attention. He uses this phrase that they've seated themselves in the place of Moses. Back in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, a synagogue typically was a structure like this, and there was a podium in the middle here, an altar, where they would keep the, uh, the law. They would keep the word of God. And right in front of the, 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 where they would hold the, the law of God would be a seat. This is where the teacher would sit whenever he would um, teach the law. In front of everyone, everyone will sit down here. Before we can really get into this, we need to understand what we're talking about. Okay, you don't have to flip there, but if you look at the, the page between the Old Testament and the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, typically in your Bible, there's a blank page there. That blank page is there on purpose. It's not a mistake. It represents 400 years of silence from God. This is 400 years from the death of the last prophet until John the Baptist began to tell people the Messiah is here. During that 400 years, what happened was that the Jewish people were conquered by different nations. Okay, they would come in. The first it was the um, Babylonians, and it was the Persians, and then the Assyrians, and then uh, the, the Greeks, and then the Romans, right? So each wave of, of invaders that would come and conquer them, they would change the culture. So imagine, for instance, here's what, here's what would happen. Typically, a nation would come and they would conquer someone, and they would remove all of the educated people, all the, all the affluent, the rich people who had influence, and they would take them and they would scatter them around their empire so that they could dilute whatever leadership was in that town or in that, that province. So think about this hundreds of years at a time where you have this constant change. Anybody who has any cultural references gets removed. Imagine what the identity of the people would be. 
And so there was a group of people, concerned Jews, who said, we need to teach the people who we are. And so they began to set up little schools all around Israel. These schools, they had some very simple rules. In order to have a school, you need to have at least 10 families that could represent the school, 10, 10 fathers. Okay? If you had 10 fathers, you would have what's called a place of meeting, or in Jewish, a synagogue. Okay? So that synagogue would become essentially like a public school in that town. So these teachers who started to organize this and teach the law, everything was, was directed by telling people and educating them about who they were as God's people. This group of concerned religious leaders were called Pharisees. Pharisees started out by saying, you know what? The rich people in Jerusalem who have the temple, they don't care about all the rural people. So we're going to take care of them and we're going to teach them who we are. So the rich guys who were in Jerusalem who had the temple, this religious group, the affluent people who were left behind, they're called the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't really care to get involved in the affairs of the people. They basically had their little kingdom with the temple. They could do what they wanted to do and they were content with being in charge. So the Pharisees start rising up in influence over 400 years and they begin to steal the hearts of the people. The Pharisees are the blue collar representative for the people in Israel, right? This is the, this is the, the, the regular, regular people who study God's word. And so what happens is there ends up being this division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they start going back and forth. Sadducees say, no, we are, uh, we're educated, we're affluent, you guys don't know what you're talking about, you're a bunch of hillbillies. And the Pharisees say, no, we care about the culture of God's people. But over time, what happened was these Pharisees became very used to being in the position of influence. So all these little synagogues all across Israel, they began to sit in these places of teaching and teach the people what God's word meant. So Jesus says, okay, the law, think about the law. The law is a, a symbol of God's authority. God gave the law to a man named Moses who wrote it all down. So Moses is a symbol of God's law, of God's promise. And so this is the seed of Moses. So Jesus is saying, these Pharisees, these people who have risen up to try to educate you to be the people's, people's guy, they sit in these, these places of influence. That's what he's saying here in verse 2. This is really important because Jesus, look at verse 3, Jesus doesn't discredit their position or their lessons but what he does do is he says something doesn't match up. Look at verse three. He says, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. In other words, the message is right. The message is true. God's word is relevant. He says, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Did you know that there are, there are over 70 passages of scripture that directly tell us to take action with our faith. Over 70, where it says, deeds, not words. Deeds, not words. Deeds, not words. Over 70 times, God commands us to be people of action. Now, sometimes we take that in the wrong direction. We think that we've got to do things for God to love us. That's not the gospel. We cannot earn our salvation. We can't earn God's favor. God is never going to change how he feels about you based on what you do. But what he does do is he looks at us in where our allegiances are, where our heart is. 
And what, what Jesus is saying is he, here is he's saying the message is credible, but don't do what they're saying because, don't do what they're, they're doing because their actions don't match their teaching. What had happened was that these Pharisees had gotten so used to being special, being God's people, that they began to be entitled to think that they had things figured out. They don't need to mess with all those dirty people over there. We're special. So they began to tell people from a insulated position, this is how you need to live your life. And they were nitpicking. One of the things that is not talked about a whole lot is that the Pharisees had rigged the system to where you couldn't even accuse a Pharisee of wrongdoing. It's impossible. It, was, it wasn't in the law. If you were, if you were a member of the, of the sect of the Pharisees, you were exempt. So imagine someone who could tell you what to do and could never be held accountable for what they told you. He says they sit in the place, the seat of Moses. They don't do what they say they're supposed to do. You know, if we're not careful, we can fall in the same trap. That we, we focus on the easier task of knowing intellectually what God's word says, but not actually doing what it says. The challenge for us is to acknowledge that knowledge is not obedience. It's not. To know God's word is different than to do God's word. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word also. Peter says the exact same thing. So does Paul. Over 70 examples. Look at verse number four. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much of a finger. They had become abusive in their in to those in their care. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were so nitpicky that they created actually 613 new laws for people to follow. They'd fallen in love with being an authority. They didn't care about the people's hearts. See, here's a challenge that we face in 21st century America, is that when we read scripture, we typically look at it through the lens of Jesus. We see love, we see mercy, we see grace when it's about us. But when we read scripture about other people, we see things typically through the eyes of a Pharisee. We see them not matching up. We see all the things that they do wrong and we see condemnation. Why is that? Every time I read the scripture about me, I find grace and mercy and peace. But when I read it about other people, I find condemnation in all the ways that they can't do things right. You see, these kingdom leaders these judgmental Pharisees, they committed one of the most evil sins ever created by the enemies of God. They used godly things to feed their own wickedness and then when they were challenged on it, they crushed anyone that would oppose them. Consider the people in our lives who have hurt us who bear the name of Christ. Who have said things, who have done things, who have manipulated, who have turned other people against us because they're insecure. All of us carry hurts from human beings, every single one of us. It doesn't matter. You're, if you are around people long enough, you're going to get hurt. And that's true for Christians, and it's true for people who are not Christians. But the hard part is that those who are Christians, they bear the name of Christ, and so there's supposed to be an innate security there. We're supposed to have good relationships with God's people. So why is it that some of God's people are so bitter? Why is it that some of God's people use godly things, like accountability and God's word, to thumb us in the eye. 
because they are instruments of the enemy. Paul talks about this in his Gospels. But look at this next thing. Now we're going to move into public displays of idolatry. Look at verse 5. He says, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. Let me explain this. So a phylactery is a, a wooden box. So what they would do is, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gave the commandment to the Israelites to do a couple of things to, to remind them about what God had done in their life. One of those things was God said in a metaphor, he said, I want you to take my word and I want you to bind it to your hands. I want you to put it on your forehead. I want you to put it on the, the, the doorposts of your homes. I want you to put it everywhere. I want it to be all consuming for you. Well, the Pharisees took this literally. So they literally made little wooden boxes and they put little scrolls of scripture and they would tie them around their head. So they would sit on their forehead. I know this is crazy. But they would also take them and they would, they would tie them to the upper part of their left arm and the box would sit right inside their armpit right here. So that when they put their, put their arm to their body, the scripture would literally be close to their heart. I know. And then... Also, Deuteronomy, God gave the commandment for them to put tassels on the end of their clothing. This is to be a sign and a remembrance of God in his presence in their life. If you've ever, have ever seen the, the show The Chosen, if you watch them, they have little tassels on the bottom of their robe, blue and white tassels. What Jesus is saying here is that they take these phylacteries and these tassels and they make them obvious. They make them huge, supersized. So imagine this Pharisee walking around with this giant wooden box on his forehead and these giant tassels on the bottom of his robe. What is he trying to say? Hey, look at me. Check me out. Aren't I godly? Oh my goodness. Yes, you should hear me pray. This is great. Man. Have you ever met those people that, man, they know, they know, they know so much Bible Oh my goodness. But it, they miss it by 12 inches from here to here. They don't have any Jesus on the, in their life. All they know is a bunch of words. He says these people lord their spirituality over you. They go out of their way to show how important they are. He says, this is idolatry. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respect greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. What would happen back in the ancient world is the, the market was typically the entrance to the city. This is where all the business would happen. So early in the morning, here's the, here's the, the picture. Early in the morning before the sun comes up, the market is where everything happens. The businessmen come to hire their laborers for the day. People come to do politics. People come to do business deals, business transactions. They go to buy and sell things. And so typically it was a giant square right inside the front door of the city. So the workers, the poor people would show up with their shovel in one hand and their pick in the other before the sun even came up and they would sit there and then they would wait. They would wait for someone to come and give them a job for the day so they could feed themselves. What he's saying here is that this place of activity, this bustling place of activity, this is where the Pharisees come with their giant boxes on their heads, their giant tassels on their feet. They walk around in the crowd, make sure everybody sees them. They go to the most populated place and they display themselves like a peacock. And they think, man, look at me, look at me. I'm awesome. 
you know, we do the same thing sometimes too, that we miss it. Think about who these people represented, who they said they represented. They said that they represented the common person, the everyday average Joe. And yet, a Pharisee walking through a sea of average Joes with their shovels and their pickaxes, just trying to find enough money for the food, for the food that they needed for that day. They didn't care about anybody. They were walking around. They were tripping over their own large tassels and they kept getting whiplash on their neck from this giant box they carried around all the time. See, the, uh, the average everyday person, they would wear these things in life but they would only wear the phylacteries when they were praying in the synagogue. They would only have basic tassels. It was a part of everyday life. But what these Pharisees had done is they had elevated themselves to the place of God. They said, you know what? God's chosen me. I'm special. And so I need to let you know how to live your life. And in essence, what happened was that they turned themselves into the authority. The challenge is that anything that we put on God's throne will always look small. Always. And everything that is not Christ is an idol. Everything that is not God is an idol. That includes ourselves. If you're not careful, you will fall into the trap of thinking, man, God isn't God lucky that he has me. Or you take the opposite, you make the opposite mistake and you think, man, I can't believe God made me. I'm so worthless. And both of those things call God a liar. See, one of the things that Jesus is pointing out here is that they are not the champions for the people, but rather sinful representations of arrogant pride. They stake their whole public persona on being men of the people, but refuse to associate them with them in real life. You see... In South Tulsa, America, in the buckle of the Bible belt, we're really good about putting on our faces, right? Our, our, our masks. We're really good at pretending everything's all great and all, all wonderful. That we've, we've got everything figured out. Don't worry about it. I got it. I'll figure it out. Don't worry. Oh, I know I've got challenges in my life, but don't, I'm not going to ask for help because God forbid I should ask for help. I'm smart enough. I can handle it. I don't want to bother anybody. It's idolatry. Idolatry is the simple action of taking something that's created and putting it in the place of God. What Jesus is saying here is that these Pharisees who had started out with the desire to educate God's people in who God created them to be, they had fallen in love with the shine and one of the challenges is that when God's spirit leaves a person, when God's spirit leaves a people, when the shine is no longer there, they try to manufacture it in different ways. And so what happens is you end up with shallow people using tricks to get people to come back to them and ask for advice. And if the tricks don't work, they use abuse. We see this in godless, faithless churches all over the world where you have dynamic, shiny people at the helm, these pastors who promise you everything 
And once that doesn't happen, there's always a moving goalpost. There's always something else you got to do in order to accomplish. Maybe God's not giving you what you want because you're not doing enough, you're not being a certain way, or maybe you haven't given enough money, or maybe you're just not the, the right kind of person. These people were idols. The lesson for us here is simple. Anything that we make as the most important thing in our life that is not Jesus is an idol, even ourselves. But notice what Jesus says here. He, sa- he says, okay, you guys over here, you think that you're something special and you clearly are not doing what you're supposed to do. Let's talk about things in context. Okay, look at these couple of verses here, starting in verse eight. Jesus is gonna tell them that we're all the same. He says, but do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders for one is your leader, that is Christ. See, he starts out by saying that there is one teacher. One of the central theological positions for the Pharisees was that they believed in an adaptive interpretation of, of Scripture. Let me explain that. So you have all of these successive uh, empires that come in and conquer the Jews, right? So it's easy for them to forget their identity. Well, things in this time, during Jesus' time, are obviously different than when Moses recorded the law. And so every generation, when they would come up with new questions, the Pharisees would say, oh, well, the word means this in this generation. But instead of saying, okay, we're always going to go back to the word and the word is going to be defining how we live, they begin to say, no, our opinion about the word is just as powerful as the word. Oh, no, our opinion about the word is just as important as the word. We see this in our generation, actually. There are denominations, here's the thing you need to look for, that say that they believe in an individual interpretation of Scripture. What does that mean? That means that I can read this and have a definition. What does this mean to me? What does the Bible mean to me? Lindsay can read the same passage and come up with something completely different, and I can't contradict her because that's her truth. Nick can read something totally different and come up with something totally different. An individual interpretation of Scripture is one that is not tethered to fact and reality. It's one that is tethered to personal opinion and a a specific moment in your life. So what had happened was that these Pharisees began to build a whole theology on being the, the spiritual authority. And they began to insulate themselves from the actual truth of God's word and live by their opinion of God's word. So what he's saying here is that there is only one teacher. He's looking at this sea of rabbis, this sea of of Pharisees, and he's saying, you think that you're so smart? There's only one teacher, and that's not you. Jesus tells us in in the the Gospel of John that whenever he was going to leave, he was going to send the teacher, the Holy Spirit, who was going to lead us in spirit and in truth. We are not the teacher. But look at what he says here next. He says in verse 9 that there is only one Father. He says, don't call anyone on earth your father. What he's talking about here, racism was actually a really huge thing back in the day. Still a thing today, but it's, it was even more so in Jewish culture. Because they had this idea that if you were a biological descendant of Abraham, the guy who made the original covenant with God, that you were just in. Genetic lottery. I'm a Jew. I'm going to heaven. I'm a Jew. I'm right with God. Right? Some of us have the same complex. We think, oh, I come from a Christian family. I went to Bible school when I was a kid. My parents are Christians. They go to church. I go to church. Everybody goes to church. This is great. 
But as we've seen in our community, there are some people who grew up in the church that don't know Jesus. And it's not until they come to the point where they realize, well, hold on a second, that's what all that means? That's what that means? That they have to humbly say, you know what, I need that. He's saying, don't, don't, don't assume. Family connections, they tell us a lot about where we come from, but they don't determine who we belong to or where we're going. One of the things that we need to realize is that these Pharisees were saying, I'm good with God because of where I come from and who I belong to, who I'm related to. But that's not what God's word says. You need to understand that the day is coming and is right now when you have to decide who you are as an individual person. Your parents' faith is irrelevant to your eternal destiny. Let me say that again. Your parents' faith is irrelevant to your eternal destiny. It does not matter how good of a person your grandma was and how much she prays for you. It doesn't matter how good your parents were or what your dad did for a living. If he was a pastor, if he was a deacon, if he was a truck driver, if he was a dirty, rotten scoundrel, it doesn't matter. Everyone will give an account for who they are. Everyone. He says, don't you dare say, that anyone is your father on he- here on earth because there is only one father. We will only have one person to account for, and that is for us. And we will give the- only give that account to one person, and that's to the father. Look at what he says next. Verse 10, he says, there's only one leader. Don't be called leaders, for there's only one leader, and that's Christ. You see, Jesus said that apart from him, we cannot bear any fruit at all. We cannot have any, any growth in our life. There's only one leader, and it's not me, and it's not you. God's given me a responsibility to shepherd his people. But one of the things that these Pharisees has got, had gotten wrong is they thought that they were in a different tier than everybody else. Y'all, some of you know this. I have the same struggles that you do. Our family has the same struggles that you do. The challenges that I face are no different than the challenges that you face. The addictions that I've dealt with are no different than the addictions that you deal with. We are all in this together. We are all the same. There's only one leader. And if, and if I'll tell you this right now, as your pastor, if I make a decision and, you get, and, and you're upset about that, I'll tell you right now, I'll do my best to understand how I've messed up. But if the Lord told me to do something, I got nothing to tell you because I'm not in charge. Who teaches at Reach? I'm not in charge. What we teach at Reach? I'm not in charge. This lesson has been prepared for months. One of the, one of the coolest things is whenever circumstances align with sermons that have been planned months in advance. Like for instance, last year, the most amazing thing, I thought, well, okay, well, last year was the year of transformation. What if we did a sermon series on transformations and isolation? What if we looked at people in the Bible who went through a transformation when they were by themselves in the wilderness? Guess when that first sermon hit? When the world shut down. When quarantine happened. I taught the very first lesson on transformations in the wilderness via Zoom. How do we live out in isolation? How do we transform in isolation? Meanwhile, we're checking the microphone to make sure we're all muted. 
You see, we always have to remind ourselves that in a generation of self-help, self-love, self-idolatry, and self-serving, that we are not the primary character of our lives. We are, in fact, equally broken and sinful. And we are equally wicked and selfish. And we are all the same no matter what we say or do. And there is no room at the foot of the cross for idols. And that includes the trinkets that we call trophies. The things that we think make us special are garbage. The things that we think are awesome about who we are is garbage. There is only one leader. There is only one father. There is only one master. There is only one teacher. And it is none of us. These Pharisees missed that. They thought because they were special, because they were born into a specific family, or because they had a specific education, or because they did a specific thing, or maybe they didn't have all the black spots on them that other people do, that they were somehow different and better. But Jesus says, no, you've, you've, been a, you've derelicted your duty. You haven't done what you've, you said you're supposed to do. This is all garbage. So Jesus redefines everything. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, but the greatest among you shall be the servant, but shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's three words here I want you to think about. The first is greatest. The definition of this word in, in, in Greek is megas. That's how it's pronounced in English. It's predicated of rank as belongs to a person eminent for nobility. Think about this. In other words, what it means is this person is elevated because of their exhibition of godly attributes. The greatest, the superior, the pristine, the gold standard, the greatest shall be your servant. This is the thing of supreme value. Not different value than Christ. This is the person who shares the likeness and reputation of God. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus is the, is the, the basic example of this. That he humbled himself and he emptied himself of all of the, the privileges of being God. He submitted himself to being a servant. He lived a humble life, a forgettable life. People forget that Jesus lived 10 times more life as a backwater carpenter that nobody knew his name. He, he lived 10 more times in that, in that place than he did doing ministry. Everybody focuses on the cross, and the cross is the most significant piece of history. But the reality is that Jesus, for 30 years, some of y'all haven't even gotten there yet, for 30 years, no one knew his name. No one. And he is the Messiah working in a carpentry shop, pulling splinters out of his fingers. You think your life is not going anywhere? You think your life is basic? You think that you are never going to get ahead? That somehow you, something's wrong with you because you're not married? You don't have a significant person in your life yet? Y'all, he was 30 years old, still working, living at home with his parents, with his mom and his siblings. And yet he's the example of the greatest thing. And then the second thing I want you to think about is he says the servant. This is the word diakonos. This is different than the word doulos, which is slave. Diakonos is the word actually where we get our word deacon. This is someone who waits tables. In fact, the, the actual literal definition of this is someone who clears the table of the king. Have you ever 
had someone over to your house or, or you've been at a, at, a, at a dinner at someone's home, you finish dinner, and then what do you do? You clear the table of all the dishes, you pile them in the kitchen on the counter, and then you sit around the table, and now you're able to talk. Your bellies are full. You can have a great conversation and have great fellowship. The servant is the one who clears the table. The servant is the one who takes the obstacles out of the way so that the king can build relationships with his guests. He says the greatest, the greatest person, the greatest thing is the person who clears the king's table. Why? Because the primary job, the primary desire of that servant is for people to know the king. The servant has a great relationship with the king because they belong there. What a privilege to be able to get obstacles out of the way to serve people, meet their basic needs so that they can get to know the king. One of the things that we get wrong is we think that being a Christian is all about putting food in people's bellies and putting coats on their backs, that that's the end of it. That's not. The purpose for Christian charity, the purpose for Christian love is not just to say, hey, be warmed and filled and go about your business. It's about, hey, okay, now that you're not worried about where you're going to get your next meal, let me tell you about something that's really going to fill your life. The purpose is always to share Christ, always to introduce them to the king. But here's the little word that I missed. I've been reading this passage for all my life. This possession, this possessive word. He doesn't say the greatest will be the servant. He says the greatest of you will be your servant. Jesus is telling his disciples that they will be the greatest when he's not telling them that they'll be the greatest when they serve. He's teaching them how to see the service of others. Some of us have a real problem with asking for help and letting people serve us. Hello, myself included. In 2011, the Lord gave me the privilege of crushing my right hand, my right hand. I crushed it in an accident and uh, I spent six months without my dominant hand. <coughs> Things that we take for granted that we do every day with our dominant hand, like pulling up your pants, buttoning your clothes, taking a shower, washing yourself, using the restroom, brushing your teeth, for some of us shaving our faces, for the rest of you shaving your legs or whatever. But the things that define me as a person, at least that I thought defined me as a person, playing my guitar, worshiping, writing in my journal, being able to sign the paychecks of my employees, being able to write my name, I couldn't do. And for six months, the Lord made me ask for help. Incredibly frustrating. The greatest shall be not you, the servant. The greatest will be your servant. The person who serves you. You see, these Pharisees had gotten into the mindset that they were so important that all the little people served them. This message that he's telling them is he says the greatest in this world, Pharisees, are the people that clean your table, are the people 
that shine your shoes, are the people who make your meals, are the people who take out your trash. The greatest is your servant, not you. Here's the challenge. It's that the Pharisees had perverted how they saw people. They had perverted not just how people would relate to them, but they perverted how people would see God because they are the representatives of God. They sat in this place and they spoke with authority. So people had a bent view of God. But also what happened was people started to develop a bent view of who they were as a person. Because if someone in authority tells you that you are lesser than them, that you're lesser than other people, guess what you start to believe? That you're lesser than them and you're lesser lesser than other people. The reality is that we are all in this together. The lesson's simple. If we glorify God by taking a posture of humility and serving others, he will put us on display for the world to see his character. But if we're selfish and self-seeking, he's going to diminish our influence. So where do we go from here? Reach has, has done some pretty incredible things. Just to give you a little history lesson. Over the last three years, Reach, Reach has quadrupled in size. When we started, there was about 10 of us. Now there are uh, 50, and some weeks there's 60. Reachers have now done short-term and long-term missions on six continents and in six countries and personally led people to Christ. Our global podcast, I say global on purpose because as of this week, has now been listened to over 3,000 times in 23 different countries. We have seen three salvations and numerous stories of people's lives being impacted by our pursuit of Christ. Y'all, I have, I have about a dozen messages from some of you and from others who have sent me encouragement and said, I don't know what God's doing, but um, this place is incredible. And these relationships are real and I appreciate what you're doing. Don't give up. That's where we've been just recently, in three years. We're going to do Barnabas. I'll get to that in just a second. But there's some things that I want you to be thinking about. Some of you, I know that Reach is your church. Reach is the place that you have community. But God's Word tells us that we need to be part of a committed body of believers. We need to be serving somewhere. We need to be contributing. Hebrews tells us that we are, we are commanded to assemble together to be a part of a group of people. Your faith, if it is your faith, is not something that you just talk about. Deeds, not words. If you're not involved in church, if you're not involved here at Evergreen, if you call yourself a member of Evergreen or a member of Reach and you don't have a church, Evergreen is your church. It really is. You need to be serving somewhere, contributing somewhere. Don't just float in, listen to an inspirational message, sing some songs and go home. That's bull crap. That's not going to be helpful for anybody. God's equipped you to do something and to be part of what, we're, what, what he's doing here. You need to be part of a group. You need to be part of a, a Sunday school class. You need to be part of teaching and encouraging other people. I know many of you work in the student ministry. Some of you work in preschool. Some of you work in children's ministry. Be involved. Also, you need to be a member of a church. I know that you probably were born into a church if you've been in church for some time and you just kind of just assume that you remember because you grew up there, you need to go through a, a new members class. You need to learn who your church is. 
and you need to you need to be a part of it as an adult. You're not a kid anymore. You need to make the decision. If you're in college and you think I'm only going to be here for a little bit for a little while, terrible excuse. Not true, not biblical. Get involved in a church. Get involved in a church. I don't care where it is. You need to be involved. And your season of life, I'm sorry, that's just not going to work. <laughs> it is not true. The other thing is that I, I saw some great encouragement this last week of some of our, some of you I know are involved in discipleship. Discipleship is not Christian education. It is not. Discipleship is sharing someone's life. It's meeting with someone on a regular basis and learning how, how to live the Christian life by just observation and asking questions. We call it elbow time or windshield time. Asking that person that you respect, say, hey, can we grab coffee? And then you ask them again, can we grab coffee again? You find excuses to be with that person because you see Jesus on them. Because discipleship is caught, it's not taught. It's like COVID. You get it by proximity. <laughs> see what I did there? Is that, is that not politically correct? Oh, okay. Highly contagious, highly contagious. But I want, I want to encourage you to be involved in a committed discipleship relationship. If you don't know what that looks like, I want you to come talk to me. This is important. Because if you don't have discipleship, you don't have somebody showing you how to live, an older believer, you are going to be eaten alive. You are not going to know what's true. You're not going to have, have the wherewithal to challenge the, the lies that our culture is telling you. You need to know what's real. And stop playing games. The last thing is Barnabas. I know I've gone long, and I won't belabor the point. Barnabas is going to be really hard, y'all. It's going to be really hard. We have the opportunity to love on people that have no physical capacity. Some of them are, are going to be able to talk to you. Some of them are not. Some of them are going to be able to take care of themselves physically. Some of them are not. It's going to be hard. It's going to be dirty. It's going to be exhausting. But I want you to think about this one thing as you leave here tonight. Where were you at your lowest point and who saw you there and had the compassion to say, hey, can I help you? Who were you in that moment when that person said, hey, can I help you? We have the opportunity to put our money where our mouth is to not spend that $100 on a new video game, but to spend it on influencing someone's life for eternity. We have the opportunity to change the world. And the only way that we do that is if we actually do what he told us to do, and that's to serve. I don't want you to be a workaholic. I don't want you to be overcommitted. I don't want you to be working yourself to the bone. But what I want for you is I want you to chase Jesus and to experience the fullness of what he has for you. And this is the path. Next year is going to be incredibly difficult. We're going to have laughs. We're going to have a great time along the way, and it's going to be fun some of the time. But I'm telling you right now, I've, I've spent the last several weeks making peace of this, with this in my heart. Y'all, we're going to have to embrace the suck. Because this is too important. Our culture is dying our friends and our family are believing lies about themselves that's being, that's corrupting their nature. 
They're being twisted into, into knots. They're taking their own lives. We have an opportunity. And here's the other thing I'll tell you. I'm going to leave you with two last things. Number one, I know that this is the path for us because it's time to get in the game. The Lord has told me that specifically. But here's the other thing I'm going to tell you. And hear me. I will not chase you. I will not do it. You flake out on me, that's not my fault. You chicken out, that's not my fault. Because you're not telling me no. You're telling the Lord no. I didn't say it, he said it. I'm just telling you what he said. We can go do hard things. We can go slay the dragon. We can go challenge the gates of hell. We can do those things if we're obedient to what God calls us to be. But I don't have time to chase you, to coddle you, to make sure that you're comfortable, to stroke your hair and tell you it's going to be okay. It's time for us to move forward. I'll promise you one thing, and that's the only thing that I can promise you, is that I will do my best to use this as our guide. And if you want to go, let's freaking go. But if you want to stay here, if you want to play church, if you want to do the laser lights and fog machines and all that fun stuff, if you want me to wear Jordans, <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> Next year is going to be the year of the servant. And it's going to be a wild ride. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Domingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.